Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in sales and partnerships at LinkedIn, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has worked at that tech giant for over a decade. But before I introduce you to Andrew Cohen, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that offers unique career insights and job advice from the professionals like Andrew who are actually working in those jobs. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Andrew Cohen, a senior enterprise account executive in the higher education vertical at LinkedIn. Andrew joined LinkedIn in October 2011 as a campaign manager, where he was part of a team that executed marketing and advertising campaigns on behalf of companies that wanted to raise their profile on LinkedIn. And most recently, for the last, I guess, about four and a half years, Andrew has been a part of the higher education vertical, where he's been advising colleges and universities, as well as online universities at tech companies, media agencies, and online program management firms on driving growth through customized partnerships that target and acquire prospective students and alumni. Andrew also shares his career advice and his immense LinkedIn experience directly with students in webinars and on-campus presentations. Andrew, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Andrew, absolutely. Thrilled to be here. I have my second uh, cup of java. Looking forward to a great conversation. Thanks so much. Awesome. So what kind of java do you brew in the Cohen household? My wife and I brew a very large pot to uh, start our day since we have two little uh, rugrats at home. So right now we're on a bit of a Pete's coffee kick. Okay. Um, and we have that going quite a while. Yeah. Constant brewing, let's just say. (laughs) Well, I know you are a coffee connoisseur because you took me to an incredibly cool mom and pop coffee shop in Terrytown, New York, near where you live, where we got to meet up in real life and where the barista actually freestyles portraits of customers who order an espresso drink with some kind of dairy. And it's called Coffee Lab Roasters in Terrytown. That was amazing, Andrew. How great was that? 
you know, we talk so much about social networking and connecting with people online, but we actually got to do it in person, which was fabulous. And yeah, they have some serious uh, barista talents over in uh, Terrytown, New York. So that was a lot of fun. So glad we were able to, uh, to connect that way. Yeah, me too. And if you find yourselves in the Westchester area of New York, I highly recommend you go to Coffee Lab Roasters. The coffee was delicious. The presentation was off the charts. Never experienced that before. They sold us through, let's say that. (laughs) Yes, they did. So let us get into it. Let's dive into it, Andrew. I know you have a ton of career advice to share, which we're going to be getting into shortly. But first, let's kick things off with talking about your current job. Your title is Senior Enterprise Account Executive in the Higher Education Vertical at LinkedIn. What does that mean to be a Senior Enterprise Account Executive working in the Higher Education Vertical? I know that's a long title, huh? Let's break it down. At LinkedIn, we have numerous uh, lines of business, numerous divisions that that bring in revenue for the company. I work in what we call our marketing solution space, which for those of you not familiar, it's what you would just call traditional marketing and advertising online. And within that, I focus across the higher education landscape, which as you mentioned in your introduction, include traditional universities, some of which our listeners may be at right now, online universities, education technology companies, e-learning companies, online program management company, bootcamp. The space is fascinating because it just continues to evolve. And what I do at LinkedIn is I partner with those companies and schools and institutions to help further their initiatives, their brands, their missions, and help them attract and acquire high-quality students to support their university going forward. So it's a really exciting job. It's also a very fulfilling job. It matches with our company's mission and values to drive opportunity, economic opportunity for everybody. And it's been an absolute thrill to work on that sector for the past, I believe, almost five years now. Yeah. So what are your job responsibilities in your current role? In a traditional sense, I am in sales. And my core responsibility is to drive sustain, retain, and grow revenue within a set account list for the company. So we have ambitious goals. We are very ambitious people here, like myself, and as you are as well, and hopefully your listeners are too. And so every every month, every quarter, every six months, every year is to continue to grow and develop core relationships with my clients, specifically drive value across what their key objectives may be, and utilize LinkedIn's platform ecosystem suite of products and solutions to make sure that they are consistently and sustaining the performance that they may like for their marketing and advertising campaigns, for their degree programs they're trying to promote, for the well-being of their students and alumni, and continue that and build these long-term lasting relationships over the years. And that's what I try to accomplish every single day. Um, And it's really exciting and very grateful to be able to do that for a company like LinkedIn. So what does it look like if we were to break it down for students who've never been in a company before, Mm -hmm. never worked in a sales role as you are in, what does success look like in that role? Is it selling a certain target amount of ads every month? Is it sustaining the existing clients and having them increase? 
Mm. The amount of ads, ad spend they're putting out every month, what does that look like? It's a great question. What does success look like? It's actually one of my favorite sales questions to ask my client. What does success look like? For myself, I work in an environment where I have a set number of clients that changes over time. But I like to work with clients for numerous years and really build those deep relationships and really get to know the ins and outs of a customer so that I can be the best rep possible in terms of not just driving solutions, but driving solutions that I know make sense to solve their business problems and challenges. My core day is involved with really understanding my my customers, prospecting within my customers, which could involve cold email outreach, cold calling outreach, something that we just talked about a little bit, which is you know getting to know different parts of a university or a company. They all have multiple divisions. And then working with my colleagues and, and what we call my pod, different people on my team who are wonderful, to talk with their marketing departments and understand their current goals and objectives to drive performance. Everyone in this industry is, is looking for key success metrics that they're wanting to hit. And they're trying to do that across, across mediums and platforms, whether it's online with, with other social media companies, other digital platforms, could be on television, connected television, it could be a billboard. The fun thing about advertising is that it's a constantly evolving landscape and all clients, whether it's a university or a major consumer brand out there, are always trying to get one step above their competition. And in the higher education landscape, as you know very well, there is a lot of competition out there from the education landscape. I think there's something like over 2,000 different graduate business options for consumers. So it's highly competitive for us. But what's exciting too is then from the consumer lens, there's an unbelievable amount of excitement and opportunity and options out there that affords. So we're always trying to balance how do you reach a consumer? How do you connect with a consumer on our platform when I'm presenting and pitching who has so many options out there? And that's, that's really what we try to do in consulting with our clients. So when, let's say, a college advertises on LinkedIn, what does success tend to look like? Is it the number of new students that are clicking on the ad? Is it the percentage that convert into applicants? How do they measure success? It's a great question. Success always comes down to some sort of ROI or return on investments. Like any marketer out there, they want to generate enough return to make their investments pan out. What we do is we consult and help our clients understand who the best prospects are that align with the program they may be advertising, the school, the university's mission that we believe have the most interest and most intense. And what's amazing about the digital advertising landscape is that most of this information can be tracked in a way that allows us to measure that ROI consistently and quite quickly for a partner so that they understand by investing X percent of funds, they're going to generate X percent of potential applicants for the school who may enroll to then further that degree program that they're trying to uh, promote into the, into the world. You mentioned that there's all kinds of data. What kind of role does data analytics play in your work? And do you have to understand data analytics, Andrew, 
Or is that something that other people at LinkedIn do? They provide you with those metrics. I'm just curious whether or not this is something that you knew before you joined LinkedIn or if you had to learn it on the job. Everyone utilizes data in some capacity, but data is only as good as the story that you tell with it. And that's something that I've had to learn and evolve in my utilization of data, especially when I'm presenting or when I am trying to influence a client to go in a certain direction. Anyone can take data to tell a story and anyone can take the opposite end of it to tell a story. We've all heard of the analogy, you know, are you a glass full, glass half empty? That's storytelling with data. It's 50%. What side of the 50% are you on? So what we try to do is look at all the data that we have available, but most specifically, what data points do we have available that help tell the story and the narrative that we want to come across? I don't start with the data. What I start with is the endpoint in sales. I start with where I want the customer or the client to be from a mindset perspective after our conversation or after my pitch. And then I work backwards. The great part about data is that it is concrete. It doesn't change. But you don't have to use all of it. And that's one of the things that I'm still learning, which is exciting. But it's taken me, gosh, 10 plus years to to really understand is just because you have a data point doesn't mean you have to share the data point. You're not withholding. You're not manipulating, obviously. But you can pull reporting. You can build dashboards. You can do all these amazing things. The data and insights team can send me a file with just dozens of data points. But I don't need to share all of that to tell my unique story or to build that narrative or that pitch. So, Because it could be overwhelming, right? Absolutely. Too many data points, it, I think it would confuse your audience perhaps rather than bring them greater clarity. Mm, absolutely. And one of the best words of wisdom and advice I got from one of my mentors is that especially as you start presenting to higher and more senior level individuals, they are only going to remember two, maybe three things that you say during an entire presentation. So what are the two or three data points or storylines that you have to make sure they understand at the end of it? They're not going to remember the 15 slides of data or the massive charts at the end of it. They're going to remember just two or three things. So you need to make sure that those stand by themselves to influence and get, make sure that you get to that next conversation. So you've mentioned a couple of times now having to do these presentations. I'm assuming these are PowerPoint presentations. Could you give us a sense of how many slides are usually in really successful PowerPoint presentation and how long it takes you mm-hmm. on average to put it together? Great question. The fewer, the better. The more simplistic your presentation, the fewer the slides. I really try to get them to six slides or fewer, which is incredibly difficult. It's far easier for me to put a 30-slide deck together. It's interesting. As you look back through your education career, when I was in school and many people, growing up, you're taught to increase your page count. You know, you start with your five-paragraph essay. Say, and then all of a sudden you need to do a three page report and then a five page, and all it's just it's always about more. And even at times, you were taught that you know just writing more is going to get you a better grade. My freshman writing class, first day, and this is one of my favorite assignments the professor put a paragraph on the board and said, 
take this entire six sentence paragraph and make it one sentence. And that was the assignment. Get all the information in there, make it one sentence. And that's, that's what building an effective presentation is now. It's really simplifying your message, removing all the fluff, inserting the most applicable data points so that you can effectively tell and influence the person across the room or across the Zoom so that they don't have to question what your prerogative is. How do you take everything you want to say and simplify it down? And that editing is incredibly difficult. So I spend more time refining and editing slides than I do creating. I'll start off creating 30 slides, but then I'll really work to whittle it down to six. And would you also say that the fewer the words on the slide, the better? Absolutely. People react to images first. They're going to look at your image or look at the chart or the graph that you may have, or just the stock photo that you may have. They're first going to see that, then they're going to notice your headline, and then you need maybe one call to action. If your entire PowerPoint slide for those maybe thinking about how their finals may look in college right now, it's all words, you've lost your audience. And then you have to spend the rest of your presentation building them back up. The whole idea of a slide, you don't have to put everything you want to say on there. That's what a talk track is for, right? That's what the notes are for. Your slide is about inviting the person in who's watching you present and captivating them with a really impactful headline. And then using your presentation skills, your oratory skills, right, your notes to defend and sell through what you're now presenting. If it's all on the slide, you leave nothing to the imagination of the story. Most people think of a PowerPoint or any sort of presentation, the slides, everything, the slides speak for themselves. The slides is the end point. No, your presentation is there. What you say, how you represent yourself, your body language, how you captivate the audience is really the goal. The slides are there as a means to support you in what you're trying to do. It's not the end point. So we'll get into a little bit more what you were thinking you were going to do with your degree when you were an undergrad at Bucknell. But suffice it to say, you didn't study marketing. No. You didn't study communications. How did you learn how to do an effective presentation, PowerPoint slides, and be a kick-ass salesperson? You started at LinkedIn 11 years ago as a campaign manager implementing the marketing and advertising campaigns. So were you the ones creating the ads? It's a great question. Yeah, the implementation, really key word there. Wow, 10 10 plus years ago, my role was very, very different. It was still within the same division. I was still working with clients, but I was very much what I would call behind the scenes, very inside. My core responsibility was the implementation and activation of our clients' advertising campaigns, which involved utilizing their ad creatives and in our digital landscape, actual code. HTML, CSS, JavaScript code to implement what we call ad tagging, implement their ads onto our website. So I was looking at code. I was managing these campaigns. I was analyzing the data to make sure that they were delivering properly to the right people at the right time versus what we had promised. And I think we had mentioned this when we spoke um, a couple of days ago. 
I was being judged on things like my error rate and and how many mistakes I was being made versus what my core responsibility is now, which is all about incremental revenue and, and addition. So almost the complete opposite. I was being judged on mistakes versus successes. And so what was that like? Stressful when you're very young and, and wanna do really well and you're 23 years old. It's sort of the evolution of our landscape though. I remember we would have situations, I'd be up till midnight making sure that a big campaign which had a launch, you know, midnight on December 7 went live correctly. And frankly, there were many times where they didn't. And it was extraordinarily stressful. Had to have a lot of horrible conversations, but it was an amazing learning experience to feel that stress and anxiety a little bit to feel that pressure. And it's, I actually learned that in many ways, I, from a, a work standpoint, I actually thrived under that stress and pressure. Those hard deadlines, trying to get my error rate down to single digits or even zero in some quarters, how to operationalize and, and, and streamline my own processes and the companies and my colleagues so that we were all as successful as possible. Because as, as we grew successful, so did our friends and so did our company and we continue to grow. And that was what was really exciting. So you said you were looking at code. Yeah. Had you studied no. code? <laughs> so how did you learn how to interpret it? My first job after graduation was at a tech startup, downtown New York, Silicon Alley. And I was 22. My manager was 23. And we were doing the same thing, advertising operations. And everything was just being built and developed on the fly as we were growing and scaling the business. And it was one of those situations where the VP of sales would sell through a big deal to a consumer beverage brand. And he'd walk over and say, Andrew, we got to get this live in 24 hours. Can you figure it out? And when you're 22, you say, absolutely. You're so, so grateful for that role. And so I would work late, get home, I'd have dinner. I would boot up my laptop. I would check my work to make sure things activated. I would, you know, try to figure it out. I would Google search. I'd watch YouTube videos. I'd try everything possible to figure it out until 2 a.m. I'd get back to work. I'd run it by my boss. He'd say, let's give it a shot. And I would do that. And I did that for a year, almost every night, trying to literally figure things out as I didn't know. My knowledge and curiosity really blossomed at that point. So that when I got recruiter calls a year later, I came to the table saying, these are my skills. I can do all this. And here are examples of what I've been able to learn and do myself. I and, love that. I yeah. love that, Andrew. And I talk a lot about the power of transferable skills mm. on LinkedIn. And perhaps maybe right now, I can share the fact that you majored in political science and religion as an undergrad, what kind of skills, what kind of hard and soft skills do you think you were able to repurpose as you started to build your post-grad career? I posted about this. I think I commented on one of your own posts on LinkedIn a few days ago, where 9 of the 10 most in-demand skills by employers right now are surrounding communication. 9 of the top 10 in-demand skills are surrounded by communication. Think about that for a second. The most valuable thing in the business world right now is influential, simplistic, right? Business driving, value driving communication, right? 
as I mentioned, you know, how do you take that one paragraph and make it one sentence? How do you put that one data point in to really tell your story? How do you convert your resume to saying, I worked on a significant project for our student investment fund to saying, I led a team of four that increased our profit margin by X percent over the last six months. Think about how much more value you just got in that one sense. Business communication, effective emailing, effective outreach, effective content creation, effective copywriting. All of these things are part of everyone's core responsibilities these days. There are very few classes that I know of, or at least when I was in university, around more effective communication. If you're lucky enough, I implore all of you, take a public speaking class, work on your effective business writing. Not essay writing, not term papers, not 60-page thesis, but how do you make really effective writing so that when you start to network and outreach and interview and reformat your resumes and cover letters, you can differentiate yourself because you are telling a much clearer story to that person across the room from you. So interesting. And I also know, Andrew, and I know you do as well from visiting campuses and meeting with students, that there's such a high level of anxiety and stress among students who feel like if they don't have everything they need to have before they graduate, they shouldn't be applying for certain jobs. What kind of comfort or advice can you give them about kind of facing down that imposter syndrome that is so common among people of all ages, but especially among students who feel they're not meeting 100% of a job description, who feel that they can't check every single box. The imposter syndrome is certainly real. And as you mentioned, it doesn't go away after college. And it's something that everyone really tries to work on. What they don't realize, what students don't realize is that employers they really don't want you to be able to check every box because what they really want is a potential employee, a potential colleague who can come in and yes, manage the core responsibilities, drive additional value for the company, is also an individual who is academically curious and is open to new ideas, new, new way of thinking, can, can handle criticism well, can develop, can onboard with the companies, you know, whether it's their sales tactics, their different methodologies they use in business. They want someone who's adaptable so that they can teach them those other few checkboxes and allow them to continue to grow. Because every company does a little bit different, right? There are different strategies that every company uses. They know coming in, you might not know that, but they want someone who is open-minded enough to be able to learn those and then implement those when they come on board. So that's when you're interviewing for those roles, let's say it's 80-20 principle, right? You can check 80% of those boxes. The other 20, you need to convince the person across the room that you are curious and adaptable enough so that they can teach you the other 20. You need to get that story across. Beautiful. And the good news is that Gen Zers are among the most adaptable out there because their entire lives, they've had to adapt to changing circumstances, to changing events, whether it be post 9-11 or Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So much adaptation. So very quickly, did you know what you wanted to do with your degree in political science and religion 
when you graduated in May 2010, Andrew? No, absolutely no. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought I wanted to be Josh Lyman from the West Wing, if anyone's watched the show. I thought I wanted to work in politics. I opened an LSAT book my senior year and very quickly realized it was not for me. And that was okay. That was okay. I graduated without a job, without many prospects. But again... During a recession. During a recession, sure. That was also okay. I was going to interview and outreach and network and, and really work hard and ask for a lot of advice from family, friends, people I had interned with previously over the summers to get into an industry. Not a specific company necessarily, but into an industry that I thought would help my long-term professional development. So what was your first job and how did you get it? My first job was at a company called Thrillist, which was very much a startup downtown Soho, New York, and a loft. All the things that you see in television shows and think about very early on. That company has grown massively and evolved over the past decade or so. I got that job when I was connected through a friend at a driving range. I was a golfer in college. And I influenced their senior, their VP, senior vice president of sales to add me to their growing team. And he, you know, very grateful, um, gave me that shot. But I knew I wanted to be in the internet space. I wanted to be in marketing and advertising in some capacity because I'd had a, a very open conversation with my father, who was a mentor of mine. And he told me great career advice, which was to try and find a wave and ride the wave. Find the industry that is generating amazing user adoption, is integrating itself into broader society. Because just being in that industry affords you more opportunities than you can think of. Because these companies are going to be growing organically. You know, If they're growing 30%, 40% every year, whatever it may be, new products are coming out, new divisions, new roles. You're just going to be... The, the opportunities for you as an individual, these companies become greater. Your learning abilities become greater versus a more traditional company or industry you may think of where maybe you can't even move up unless your manager leaves. I wanted that that excitement, that organic growth when I was in my early 20s. And it was great, amazing career advice that very grateful I was able to utilize. Yeah. I love that idea of riding the wave. Ride the wave. See where the the industries that have the most growth potential and where it's happening and go there. And there's so many different job functions Mm -hmm. within those companies. It doesn't just have to be in marketing or advertising sales. It's finance, it's research, it's human resources. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, let's just talk to the accounting majors out there right now. Just because you're an accounting major and you want to do accounting or be an accountant doesn't mean you have to go work at a big four accounting firm. That function, that accounting function exists. Every single industry and company there is. Every single one has accounting in some capacity. So you don't have to go into that industry or what the company does, right? You can do accounting at an aerospace company, at a renewable energy company. You can do it at a consumer beverage company. You can do it in a retail company. You can do it that aligns potentially more with some of your core values as a person or in an industry that you really have a lot of, of passions about or is surrounded around an activity that you really like to do. 
be an accountant if you love to run. Be, you know, think about being an accountant at Nike, right? You can do that in so many places. You don't need to just laser focus on the companies or the logos that have been just implanted on your brain from such a young age. You have taken a page out of my playbook, Andrew. I love that. We are so on the same plane here. I just quickly want to touch on the extracurriculars that you were involved in in school because you mentioned that you played golf. You were a very serious golf player when you were in school. Did you learn anything out on the links playing on the school team that in hindsight you see that it actually helped you when you moved into the professional world, the working world. Yeah. I did play division one golf. I had a very successful career. It was an absolute thrill to play with my friends and be in that sort of environment. And a little while ago, I I mentioned that how starting out my career, I was thriving under a little bit of that anxiety and that pressure. I learned that playing athletics and playing division one athletics especially on a individual type sport like golf, where the only person I can really rely on was myself. What prep work, what practice that I put in and reflecting back. And as I developed my, my mental game, when I became a junior and a senior, which is when I really started to flourish on the course or on the links, was that my best golf was when I was under the, the most pressure. Right. When I was in that final pairing, when the rest of the team was relying on me to post a good score, I realized myself that being under those deadlines, having people watching me is when I actually performed best, which is not for most people. I, I, I understand that, but it worked for me. And it's still true today. I do a lot of my best work when I have a fast deadline approaching and someone puts a little bit more pressure on me which is why I think sales is a great profession for me and a great function for me. And so I think I would not have realized that about myself had I not been put in those situations playing golf in college. I love that. Yeah. And you're doing presentations where all eyes are on you as well. So Um, it's so cool that there's this multifaceted way that your love of being under pressure mm -hmm. and also having all eyes on you is getting showcased. Yeah. I don't mind. I, I've learned to love public speaking, whether it's giving a presentation, whether it's speaking at a wedding, at a big conference that does not phase me. I, I know how to prepare and preparation is key as it was in playing Division One athletics. To me, and maybe this is applicable to some of your speakers, maybe it's not, and some of your listeners, you feel that anxiety about a final, about a presentation, about an interview, because you know what you want. That's why you feel anxious about it. If you didn't care about what was about to happen or the end result, you're not going to feel anxious about it. But you do care. You want that role. You want to ace that exam. You want to get that A on your report card. That's where the anxiety comes from. So when you start to understand that a little bit, you can start to utilize that pressure and anxiety a little bit as fuel. Now, you want to keep that in balance, right? You don't want it to be a crippling level of anxiety. But you can use that to fuel studying that extra hour or doing one more run through before that interview or before that presentation. You can use that as fuel. And to me, that really motivated me. And then just the the other thing that I learned playing athletics and just in general that I use now is I, I absolutely love to prove people wrong. That is a huge motivator for me. My greatest managers in my career have realized that of their individual and of me. Nothing is motivates me more than someone telling me I can't do something or saying I wasn't good enough. And then 
working really, really hard to prove them wrong down the road. That to me is that that gets me up in the morning. You can see I'm already more energized in my and how I'm speaking about that. And yeah, forget the caffeine. Forget, you know, I don't. <laughs> that's all the motivation. <laughs> so, Andrew, I would be remiss if I didn't tap into your expertise on LinkedIn and seek your advice for our listeners about maybe some insider tips that they could be leveraging on the platform to help them in their job search. Absolutely. The first is get on the platform. I'm going to guess there are even some of your listeners who don't have a profile. It is so easy. I really encourage you, don't wait until the final hour of May of your senior year graduation to create a profile. Create it now. Highlight your work, connect with people, start to follow people, and really start to leverage. It's really the entire ecosystem that it affords. And again, the whole platform is about creating opportunity for everybody around the world. And it's at your fingertips. But you maybe need some, some help on where to look. Absolutely, the first place is understanding if you're in college or university, tapping into that amazing alumni network. But do so in a really smart what I call value-driven way, right? And that's a great first place to start. When you reach out to alumni, don't just ask to get intro to your HR department for their rotational program, or I want to be an intern, or help me get a job. What you want is to reach out in such a way to start a dialogue or a conversation. Not get that job, which is where most people are starting. It's how do I develop that relationship? And the easiest way to do so with an alumni is to try to provide something of value to that individual on in the first outreach. So if someone's reaching out to me, and I want to buck now, so when a student reaches out to me, they have an ask, but they also want to provide something. So can they provide me with maybe an interesting project that they worked on that is applicable to my job? Or here's a news article I thought you might really like, Andrew. Or here's something going on at campus I thought you should know about. You know, I don't go to campus every year. Provide me with enough intrigue so I want to I wanna help you. And then you build the relationship. And then I know I'm getting value from the relationship. I'm going to be more willing to put you in touch or connect you. And then the other word of advice is... And we had this happen when, when we met in person, Andrew. Was it used to be around you know, what, what newspapers do you read? Or where do you get your news? Or how do you stay up to date on the industry? Where everything is evolving now is from content creators and companies putting out amazing content, which is a great way to learn the inner workings of an industry, even an individual. So when we were vibing, we were talking about what are some people that are putting out amazing content or articles or just wrote these books I thought you'd be really interested in, right? Do the in same. our case, it was in the career space. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned people you had interviewed, you know, Marcus Chan or some Mornell or all these people, I cannot wait to listen to these interviews or purchase these books. When someone reaches out to me, I would love them to ask, who are you following? Where are you staying up to date on the unit? I'm really interested in B2B sales, software sales, internet sales. Who are some people I can learn from? And I'd be like, oh, I just started following this guy, Scott Lease. You've never heard of him, but he's putting out tips every single day. You should follow him. Here's a link. Now, each providing each other's value. And that's how you build those meaningful relationships on the platform. And then the second point is that every company out there, when they're posting about jobs, is telling you exactly what you need to be able to do. Every single job posting is going into unbelievable detail about 
the day-to-day life of the company, about the role, the skills, the different software and applications that you're going to use, their, me- their sales methodologies. They're telling you this. Do you know those skills? Have you worked in those platforms? Are they on your profile? If they're not, that's okay. But guess what? They just told you. So go learn that. There's nothing stopping you from learning these things. There's open source all over the place. You can just go to YouTube and learn how to use Salesforce or a different CRM system or Google Analytics or online advertising. There's absolutely nothing holding you back from being able to walk into that room or interact with someone. And you can not just check the boxes, but talk about applying the things that they want you to know how to do. Great advice. And if you weren't already, thinking about this, you definitely want to be following Andrew (laughs) on LinkedIn, my friends. So two final questions, Andrew, and these are questions I try to ask all of my guests. Could you share a time in your professional life when you faced a big challenge? Maybe you even failed. But the most important thing here in this example is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. I remember, and we talked about how I started more on the operations side, realized I wanted to move into account management, customer service, client success. To do that at a company like LinkedIn or a large enterprise company, they're not just going to give you the role. No one's just going to give you that role because you're good at your previous job. You need to demonstrate that you are the best person to get in that seat and drive value going forward. So I had an interview. I had to interview. I had to prepare. I had to create presentations. I had to do panel interviews, just like I was applying for the job from the start. I was just like everybody else. And my first go around, I failed. Bond. Not good. But what I realized, and my manager at the time said, what'd you learn? And I learned that, first of all, I think I had a 28-slide presentation for a 30-minute interview. That's far too many. I was not succinct in my responses. And my manager at the time, very grateful, great individual named Scott, he said, get feedback. Get feedback. They're your colleagues. They're your friends. They, they want to help you. You didn't get it now. That's okay. Email every single person you met with and ask for feedback. And when they give you feedback, don't just brush it off. Accept it. Write it down. Compile it together and learn from it. And that was the best advice. And so when I went for it a few months later, I proved some people wrong. And I got the role. I had people on my side, of course. But I was able to take those key learnings because I asked for feedback. And that's something a lot of people are very fearful, have anxiety about. No, this whole process is learning. When you're in college, when you're starting a career, get feedback from everybody. That's the best tip you can give. And don't, don't brush it off because you think you're potentially know-it-all. And I probably wasn't know-it-all when I was 24. But ask everybody. Ask your friends. Ask your professors. Ask people you're interviewing with. After you give a final presentation in college in a course and you get that grade, that's not the end point. It should not be your end point because you got that A or A minus or B plus, whatever it may be. After you get that, go to your professor after class one-on-one and say, Hey, I had a great time. I'd love some feedback on my final presentation. Not the content, but my actual presentation. And they're going to give you feedback and they're going to love that because no one else does this. So that you can become a better presenter. You're going to just get a little bit better. You're going to get a little bit better today, a little bit better tomorrow. Same thing when you go to interview or you're doing a phone screen. After the whole process is done, whether or not you get the role or get the next conversation, ask the recruiter, ask the hiring manager, ask for candid feedback. 
and keep track of all of this in a very safe place. Because one keeps the dialogue going so that you can even reply back to the feedback. You can thank them. You can say, really appreciate it. I'm going to work on these things. I'm going to be better. The next time one of these roles opens up, I'd love to be considered. So you're just differentiating yourself from the start. And you're now realizing what you can do to be better. So get feedback. Heck, if you can, record yourself. Record your conversations. Ask the recruiter, can I record this? Can I take notes while we're talking? All right? Can I come with a notebook? So that you can start to realize what you're actually like in these conversations. You can speak more clearly. You can get your points across faster. Because this whole career launching process, it's a process, right? It's not an endpoint. And you're going to apply for more jobs. You're going to change jobs. You're going to change industries. You're going to do so many things in your excited career going forward that you just have to keep improving and keep learning along the way. Amazing advice, Andrew. And the only thing I would add to compliment all of the advice you gave there, it's just another way of saying it is something that I had a challenge doing. And that was try not to be defensive. Mm. When you hear that constructive feedback, try not to make excuses for it. Try just to listen, accept it, write it down and not try to push back. Well, really what I was trying to do and this is blah, blah, blah. Don't do that. Just listen. It's going to impress the person who's giving you that feedback even more. Yeah, absolutely. Final question, Andrew. Sure. If you could go back to Bucknell and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I'd start a business. I would launch two. I'd launch three. I'd find my friends and I would go in knowing I'm going to fail. I am really going to fail. But being on a campus at a university affords you that potential to start a silly little business sell t-shirts or, you know, or koozies or something silly, uh, whatever it may be. Starting a business, you're going to learn the inner workings of half the things we talked about today. You're going to learn marketing. You're going to learn sales, product development. You're going to learn all these things, launching a website, right? Getting on social media. You're just going to learn all these things and you're probably going to fail. And that's great because you're going to learn more from that endeavor than you're probably going to learn in a lot of these classes. Absolutely no offense to higher education, but the real world workings, working with people, getting out there, being vulnerable, getting feedback, all the things we talked about today. I would have loved to have started something, whatever it may have been. If I could go back, that's what I would do. Uh, it's not the classes you do. or the related, It's I would have started something. I would have tried. Just try. Go out there, be a little vulnerable and see what happens. Maybe you'll do something amazing. There's not what's stopping you. There's nothing stopping you except your effort. So put in the effort. Follow Andrew Cohen, my friends. He is absolutely going to be a game changer in your job search and in your career, most likely because of the wisdom that he has to share. Andrew, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was wonderful. Andrew, thanks so much. It was an absolute thrill. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at 
time, the number 4, coffee.org, or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. 